Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. My name is Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. I'm an associate professor of church history and doctrine. I received my PhD in 19th century American history from the University of Colorado. And after that, I worked for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the church history department on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. The purpose of these podcasts is to help Latter-day Saints better understand their history and increase their faith. I'm joined by my friend Richard LaDuke, who's an adjunct professor at the University of Utah. As part of his research, he is examining early Latter-day Saint finances. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think to start off, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about why history matters to Latter-day Saints. And I think it matters in particular because Latter-day Saints have a different type of truth claim than, than many other religions do, at least many other Christian religions. Uh, I'd like to kind of share a story with everybody um, that demonstrated to me just exactly how uh, important history can be, or at least the way that people use it in relation to our faith. When I was finishing up my PhD at the University of Colorado, I uh, was, was had just been hired to work for the Joseph Smith Papers, and, and so we were moving back uh, to Utah. I'm not actually from Utah, so... I apologize if that makes half of the people listening, you know, sign right out. If you're not from Utah, then I'm done. I'm actually from Idaho originally. But I was there doing my graduate work. And when we got, you know, uh, when I got hired for the job, we came out looking for a place. We decided that we were going to build a home. And while we were in the process of building, uh, it, it this is going to come as a gigantic shock to everyone, but it actually took the contractor longer than they said it would take to finish the home. And what that meant was we didn't have a place to live uh, while it was still being finished. And we had to rent a place on a short-term basis, almost like a month-to-month -month basis. And so we were going to a war there. This is in, in Layton, Utah. And uh, we were not very invested in the ward. I mean, we we were already attending the ward that we knew we were going to be in at some point. And so we rarely came to the ward that we technically were supposed to be in. Um, one uh, Sunday, I went to church by myself. Uh, my wife and uh, our, our children uh, were uh, gone. And so it was just me there. And I was sitting there in the back of the chapel. And I'd, you know, I'd love to tell you that I was paying very close attention to everything. And I was taking notes on every person's testimony and just really, you know, into the whole proceedings. But the truth is, I was uh, trying to change my fantasy football lineup. I, I, my quarterback had been injured, and I was trying to find someone who could at least get me 15 points. And, and so I wasn't paying attention. And as I'm, as, I'm, as I'm looking down at my phone, all of a sudden my head jerks up because the person who starts to bear their testimony is... Well, he's unfamiliar to me, but that's literally everyone else in the ward. And um, but the way he's talking is a way that that kind of sets off to me. This guy's not a member of the church. You know, people we have a way of talking, and um, 
he started telling a story about his conversion, and it was obviously very personal, but it, it sounded very different than what you normally hear. You know, he was saying that he was praying to God to have his sins taken away from him, and, and there was this great rushing wind that came into his room, and it lifted the covers off of his bed. And so, you know, I'm at this point, you know, I've already picked up a bad backup quarterback, and I'm paying attention because it's so, it's so odd. But I'm also thinking to myself, this guy's like not a member of the church. I mean, he's just, the way he's talking, either either he's a brand new member, like the missionaries just got him out of the font before the meeting, or he's investigating or something, but I didn't think there was anything negative about it. He really was just like, you know, I wanted to share with you how I came to know, you know, looking back on it, I could have noticed, because he said, how I came to know the real Jesus, ah, yeah. which I... You know, as opposed to apparently the false Jesus, which is which I didn't know at the time I was worshiping. But um, anyway, he, he finishes and he goes and sits down. And I notice that he sits. I, I kind of watch him as he goes sits down. He's sitting with a group of other people. They're all roughly the you know the same age. And the next person who's there sitting with him goes up to the pulpit. Only this guy has a whole stack of papers with him. He doesn't proceed to give a kind of innocuous you know. A testimony that, you know, just this is why I believe. His testimony is much more direct um, and, and not really a testimony, more of a condemnation. He began reading off a litany of antagonistic anti-Mormon attacks on the faith, and which, of course, is shocking to everyone sitting there in their fast and testimony meeting. He said things, for instance, like, well, we know there's people here in this area who think that Joseph Smith saw God, but we know that Joseph Smith was a liar because he changed his story about seeing God. And the Bible says that no man's ever seen God. So Joseph Smith's lying about that. So you shouldn't believe that. And he, he was just going down the row. Um, he talked about the Book of Mormon witnesses. He talked about... Um, uh, the idea that the Latter-day Saints believe that they could become like God. We all know the Bible says that, that, that there's only one God, and Joseph Smith taught that you could become like God, and therefore he's a liar. I mean, just he's just going down the list. Well, you know, I, unfortunately for our bishopric, um, our bishop was out of town, and our first counselor was out of town, and our second counselor had just barely become the second counselor. I mean, it was only the week before or, or, or uh, a couple weeks at most. But it was the first time that he had ever that he had ever conducted the meeting. And now he's faced with this, you know, this this guy who's just reading off uh, every anti-Mormon antagonist, you know, uh, hack idea that you've ever heard. Well, um he, he does try to stop him. He stands up and whispers. To, I'm sure he says something like, you know, that's not appropriate in this meeting. You know, this is for the bearing of testimonies. And the guy up on the stand just just shrugged his shoulders and kept right on going. He wasn't, he wasn't going to leave at all. He was just going to stay there and keep going. So the second counselor, again, not knowing what to do, he sends the little deacon messenger, the bishop's messenger, the little runner out. And, and we were in the stake center. So as I watched this, I, I thought to myself, well, do I need to do something? But then I saw him send him out. I'm like, okay, he's sending for the stake president. They're going to get a member of the stake presidency. He's going to come in here and, you know, take care of this. But all the while, this guy's just going on, you know, about, you know, uh, we know that Joe Smith had failed prophecies, that his revelations didn't actually come true. I mean, just going on. And eventually the stake president did come in. The stake president walked up, 
whispered in the guy's ear. I'm sure it told him he probably needs to sit down. Again, the guy just looked at him and just kept right on going. At this point, it was obvious what the what the plan was, that these um, people had, had come to uh, the, the fast and testimony meeting that day with the express purpose of trying to take over the meeting by using the open pulpit to get up and and say whatever they wanted. And and more troubling, I could see that there was a half a dozen of them. And so, yes, the first one had gone, and now the second one had gone, and, and the others were also sitting there ready to go with papers in front of them. And so I, I didn't really know what was going to happen at this point. I, I can tell you I was I was I was surprisingly upset, uh, you know, in a, in a way that's kind of condemnatory towards me, that I was so mad given the fact that I had only moments earlier not been caring at all about the proceedings of that meeting and then suddenly was, how dare you take away from me this special meeting? Um, but when I saw what was going on, I thought to myself, well, they're not going to stop. And we're going to end up having like some kind of, this is going to be on YouTube next. You know, there's going to be some kind of incident. So I'm going to have to, to do something. And so I decided I'd do the only thing I could do. Because there was one fatal flaw in their plans. Because they didn't realize, not having attended enough Latter-day Saint meetings, I guess, that you could go sit up on the stand when you were ready to bear your testimony next. So they actually were just sitting in the front row waiting to go up. <laughs> and so... When he finally finished, because he ran out of material to read, I essentially ran from the back of the chapel, because I was sitting in the back, all the way up to the front, and beat them as they were trying to go up the, the stand, uh, uh, the, the next person, and I got up there, and I, I bore a 30, 35-minute testimony. I just filibustered the whole rest of the meeting to prevent any more of... Uh, uh, you know, this, these, you know, attacks on people in their house of worship. I mean, it's one thing to, to have different opinions and want to debate, but no one should ever go into someone else's house of worship and, and, and do that. Well, eventually as I'm going, you know, I, 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 I turn and look and the stake president gives me the, okay, we're, we're good to end sign. And so I finish, he stands up and they end the meeting and that, that, you know, kind of resolve that. But when I was standing up there, I wasn't just, you know, I wasn't just reading the phone book. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't Mr. Smith goes to Washington here. I was, I was trying uh, to refute many of the things that he said. Um, the, the meeting ended, you know, everyone, you know, left without incident. And I went to class and I was actually kind of embarrassed because, you know, I was up there a long time bearing my testimony. And my embarrassment grew as I was sitting in class. My class was on the stage. And I could hear this, the stake president who had a very loud, uh, very distinctive voice. I could hear him going from classroom to classroom in the gym because it was one of these old buildings that had the dividers in the gym to create the classrooms. And he was going from classroom to classroom looking for someone who he thought was named Dirk Moss. Um, it was knocking on, you know, knocking on the partitions like, do you, do you have a brother Moss in here? I don't know a brother. Brother Moss, Dirk Moss, do you know a brother Dirk Moss? Well, of course, no one knew a brother Dirk Moss. And, and my guess is that he asked the second counselor, who is that? And by some miracle, he somehow knew who I was because I'd only gone to church there a couple of times. And he said, oh, I think that's Brother uh, Dirk Mott. But he thought my first name was Dirk and my last name was Moss. So he was walking around to all these these rooms saying, is there a Brother Moss in here? And of course, everyone's saying to him, no, there's no Brother Moss in our ward. Eventually, I hear him, you know, 
coming up the state the steps to the stage and he knocks on the door on the outside of, of the classroom and uh, says something so you know he's you know knocks and is, is there a brother moss in here and uh, the teacher says, uh, no, we don't We don't have a, a Brother Moss. And then he saw me in the back of the class, Brother Moss! And he starts coming across the room. And, and at this point, he's shouted my name incorrectly, I don't know, 12, 13 times. So at that point, you can't correct a person. You can't at that no. point say, actually, my name's Garrett. You just can't. You just you go with it. And he came up to me as Brother Moss. I just wanted to thank you for, for getting up there. And then he's like, Brother Moss, I, how did you know those things you were talking about? I've been a member of the church my whole life, and and I haven't heard some of those things. I, I mean, the picture you painted was, was almost like you were there, and I, I didn't want to get into. I was already super embarrassed, and I didn't want to get into the whole. Well, you know, actually, I work for the church history department, da, 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 da. and so I was just like, oh, I just I'm just lucky I remembered that stuff, I guess. And 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 he thanked me and went away. And, and really, the best part of the story isn't even a part of the story. I, I don't know, but. Right after that, our house was done and we moved away. I don't even know if we ever went back to this ward. And so what I like to think is that that stake president went back to his office and he, and he looked on the records of his stake and there was no Dirk Moss. There had never been a Dirk Moss in his stake. He was there by himself. No one seemed to know who he was. He seemed to know everything there was to know about Joseph Smith and he was gone. So if you ever hear a story about a third Nephite visitation coming out of Leighton, Utah, it was just, you know, lucky coincidence and happenstance. But the point of me telling that story is I was not expecting that day to have someone confront me and my faith on the basis of what they claimed the history of my church was. Now, we don't always know when someone is going to confront us with that. And so part of what I want to do with these podcasts is I want to examine some of the historical aspects of the church as well as help people understand them better, especially this year as we're going through the Come Follow Me manual and preparing uh, to learn more about the Doctrine and Covenants in our own personal study. So, Garrett, as you talk about history mattering, I'm wondering your perspective on the uh, Netflix documentary, uh, Murder Among the Mormons. What kind of insight would you have about um, Mark Hoffman and, and how you authenticate documents? If history matters as much, how, how do you know that the history that you're getting is, is real and true? That's a great question. You know, when I worked at the church history department, um, they were still dealing with the after effects, even though the Mark Hoffman saga and his forgeries um, and his murders took place in in the, the early 80s. Uh, he had flooded the documents world with so many fake uh, documents related to early church history that it it actually caused, uh, you know, a great deal of uncertainty. I mean, you know, that that. Uh, documentary spends a lot of time on the salamander letter but the reality is i mean there were all kinds of things that he created and and it is certainly the belief of the people who worked on that case that there are in private collections all over the country completely forged documents because when people have a document it's actually it's not in their best interest to find out whether or not it's forged because they went from having something that's worth 
a million dollars to being worth nothing. Well, maybe worth something because it's a Hoffman forgery, you know. In some ways, those are worth at least something. But um, I knew a lot of the people that they, they interviewed in that. I, I'm no expert on it. Um, but while we were there, one of the things we had to do was we had to we had to be trained on how to spot these forgeries. And so actually the, the same FBI agent who was the head of the case came in and uh, gave several trainings to us about it. And we used those techniques to, to examine things. And, and uh, a, the colleague I was working on documents volume one, so that it's the earliest documents volume of the Joseph Smith paper. So that covers essentially 1828, 29, 30, and 31. All the very earliest documents that we have from Joseph Smith well, of course, that is the time period that Joseph is translating the Book of Mormon when he's receiving the revelations, when the church is, is first founded. And we were really working on helping people understand what the historical record had to say about Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon. And this is, you know, this is you know, a while ago. I mean, this is uh, in, in 2000, uh, you know, 10, you know, it's, 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 it's not just, uh, you know, a little bit ago. And so um, there weren't as many sources available for members of the church to understand those kinds of aspects of their history. And so as we're going through trying to piece together all the historical documents that talk about the way that the translation took place, one of the documents that we found was a document that we got really excited about. It was a letter written uh, by someone in, an, in, in a neighboring community who claimed to have had a conversation with, with someone who explained how the Book of Mormon was translated and that they specifically said that he translated it using a seer stone. Well, my colleague and I got really excited because this is exactly the type of source we were looking for to help verify what Emma Smith said, what, what Martin Harris said, what David Whitmer said, what Oliver Cowdery said. This source, aha, it's an early source and it says it. And that's actually the problem with forgeries is they say what it is you want them to say or they talk about the subjects you want them to talk about. And that's the reason why they're so valuable. That's the reason why people uh, do that. One of the things that I thought that the Netflix documentary did a really good job of was discussing the motivation that Mark Hoffman had. I mean, first of all, you know, by playing his interviews, they, they demonstrated him to be a total, you know, sociopath that he was, he, he had no, he didn't care at all for other people and he was willing to use and abuse and hurt them and, and murder them with impunity, which is what he did. But also that he had, you know, an ax to grind against the church. And so he could have forged any document, but he knew forging documents that would place the church or the church's origin story in a negative or different light would actually harm the church. And, and that's clearly what, it's what he said he did with the Salamander letter, what he did with the Anthem transcript as he, as he created that. He, he forged early documents with the purpose of undermining people's faith. And, and he could do that with Latter-day Saints because Latter-day Saints are so connected to their history. And I'll, I'll talk about that more in a minute. But at any rate, my friend and I, even though we really wanted to believe that this document was legitimate, we'd been trained and so we started going through the process of examining the ink, examining the paper. One of the things I did was I performed a, a historical analysis of the content of the paper. Well, this guy's talking about his farm. He's talking about where he lives. He's talking about, well, I'm going to go look that stuff up. So I spent some time researching the background of that letter 
And what was really interesting is it was even more convincing because this guy really did live in this township. That really does seem to be where his farm was, where he was talking about. And I thought to myself, how could this be a forgery? Because, you know, this is this is written, if it was, if Mark Hoffman did this, it's back in the 80s. So it's back before uh, there were any, you know, digital repositories. It's not like he could just do a quick online Google search, figure out who some, you know, obscure farmer in New York is and put it out there. And so that even made me more want to believe. But as we did some tests, chemical testing to the outer cover of the letter, what, what was clear was that some of the techniques that he, that he was discovered for, um, the drying techniques, some of the chemical application techniques, were present in this letter as well. And so it, it was actually a different kind of forgery than what he usually did. You know, usually um, he, he, he forged something either from, from scratch or he... Um, would, you know, add a name to the bot. Like it was a common forgery was, you know, here's a list of people who signed a document and Sidney Rigdon too. You know, he just throws Sidney Rigdon on the bottom. And then actually, if you test any other part of the document, it's all legitimate. It really is a document from there. It's just now valuable because Sidney Rigdon signed it, even though, you know, it's a fake. Um, but uh, in this case, it appears that he had gotten a real letter. So it's somewhere looking for documents, you know. He found a real letter from the, a real farmer and rewrote it himself. And that's how he was able to have all the historical information accurate because it all lined up because it really was a real letter. He didn't have to go research. He just used the letter. And as he was writing it, he copied it exactly until he got to those couple of lines talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon, added that in, and then kept going with the letter. So it was kind of dropped in there in a way that, that you know, you wouldn't think, well, if I was forging, I wouldn't make it obvious. That's the whole point, right? When someone's forging something, for, uh, forging something that they try to make it not obvious. Anyway, we were able to discover that. And now, you know, we, we were able to set it down as another Hoffman forgery. So that, those forgeries and, and what he did, um, obviously the murders he committed continue to reverberate and continue to affect those people who were both taken in by him or lost loved ones over it. But also, it ha has really transformed the way that um, people at the church history department examine documents as they come in. Uh, the reality is people forge documents all the time trying to make money off of them or trying to sway opinion like, like he was. He was trying to do both. He was trying to sway opinion and make money. Um, while I was there, we had people all the time say, oh, you know, you know, people would either claim to have found part of the 116 pages of the Book of Mormon uh, that were lost, or that they had, you know, that they had received them by revelation themselves. So that was obviously a little bit easier to refute. But um, history matters a lot to Latter-day Saints, and because it matters so much, it it opens the door to people like Mark Hoffman who want to use that love of history to try to both hurt the church and hurt people's faith, and in this case, also benefit from them financially. So you've said that history matters a lot to Latter-day Saints. So why does it matter so much more to Latter-day Saints than to for other Christians, as an example? I mean, it's especially true for of, of Protestant Christians, right? Um, uh, certainly Catholics, their history matters a lot to them. But the reason why Latter-day Saint 
History Matters to Latter-day Saints is very similar to the reason why Catholic history matters to Catholics. Because our truth claims, what we're claiming to be true, is set in a historical narrative of events, right? Catholics are claiming that they have authority and tradition that's been passed on from the apostles through Peter, the first bishop of Rome, to Linus and Clement and all the way down the line, right? And uh, and so history matters to them because it's a, it's a story of why they have authority. And Latter-day Saints, to a much, you know, much shorter time frame, it's really the same thing. Um, whereas for other Christians, they're... Because they hold the Bible to be the only truth, that's the only thing that really has to matter is, is what's in the Bible. You know, most Protestants consider, you know, we're all sinners. All are sinners and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so if I'm a, you know, I'm a member of an, of an evangelical, you know, Christian church and I have a pastor that I deeply love and respect and who has really brought me to a closer testimony of Jesus and, you know, the, the horrible happens and it, we find out that he, you know, was cheating on his wife and that he was embezzling funds from the church and, and just, you know, goes to jail over it. That's going to hit me pretty hard personally because I, I really respected the man. But it might not, probably won't, actually affect my actual faith in Jesus because my relationship was was through the Bible, through Jesus and being saved by 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 faith alone. And... And for Latter-day Saints, it's, it's different because what we believe about Jesus comes from Joseph Smith and our other, other early prophets. Of course we believe in the Bible, but what we believe about Jesus that makes us different is something that comes from these prophets, where we're not just claiming that Joseph Smith was a really good guy and really liked to read the Bible. We're claiming that God and Jesus appeared to him that God had him translate the Book of Mormon, that God gave him dozens, hundreds of revelations and spoke to him, and that that's the reason why we believe the things we believe. And so events matter a lot more. And, and, and really, from the beginning, that's how people tried to discredit Joseph Smith, um, why they focused on him, rather than on his arguments. Because if... If Joseph's claiming to be a prophet, or others are saying that he's a prophet, and we can show that, well, Joseph's a liar about this, well, then that proves he can't really be a prophet, rather than, than attacking the, the theology. But for Latter-day Saints, everything that we love and want to believe about God comes from Joseph Smith being a prophet and the prophets who followed him. So, you know, the, the fact that Latter-day Saints believe that, that we have a Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother comes from Joseph Smith. Uh, that, that's not a, a standard Christian belief. And if you wonder, just ask your Christian friend whether or not there's a Heavenly Mother and find out. Um, uh, that, that our Heavenly Father and Jesus and the Holy Ghost are separate individuals. The idea that we had a pre-existent life, that we all lived before we came to earth. Latter-day Saints sometimes take it as a given that that's what everyone else believes. We only believe that because Joseph Smith received that by revelation. The, the fact that families can be together forever, that marriage can be for eternity, we only believe that because Joseph Smith received a revelation teaching us that. The idea that everyone who's ever lived on earth will have an equal opportunity to be saved in the celestial kingdom of God, either in this life or in the next life, and more than that, even those 
who are sinners, who, who don't repent in this life, after suffering for a, a time in the afterlife, are all going to be resurrected, with, with, and with very few exceptions. They're all going to go to a kingdom of glory. I mean, the, the God presented to us by Joseph Smith and his revelations is one of just this boundless mercy and love where even the people that are sinners, the, the, the liars, sorcerers, and whoremongers, as we get from DNC 76, they're going to go to a celestial kingdom that's a kingdom of bliss, of happiness, of, of, of wonder, rather than burn in hellfire forever. All of these beliefs that make Latter-day Saints unique, and, and, and many of them, frankly, are the ones that Latter-day Saints want to believe most. They come from the prophet, and so that's part of the reason why our history matters so much, and why people attack Joseph Smith so much, because he's the one who is giving these doctrines, which to me are beautiful, but are heresy to to the rest of Christianity. So if you, so one of the things I have several friends or, or family members where um, they were raised in the church and grew up their entire lives, and there are now just in the last ten to 20 years or so new documents new sources new things that are bringing to light things that uh, people might not have heard before um, and some people are having some difficulty with that right so what would you say to to a person that that maybe has heard something maybe even just the translation of the book of mormon something like that has been taught a certain way they look at pictures and see you know, Joseph likes looking at the plates and Oliver on the other side of a sheet, maybe, you know, writing down what he's saying versus what we know now based on more, you know, later sources. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the problem that confronts a lot of Latter-day Saints today is that we now have so much more information. And then, of course, there's so many sources and, and some are good and some are bad and and. and Oftentimes, antagonists want to make claims that historians wouldn't make, right? So, so historians deal in documents. We deal in, we deal in, in uh, uh, um, you know, what does this document say? How can I know this? But what historians can't do is historians can't determine whether or not a miracle occurred. And, and what's really interesting is, is even the line of, of, of approach that was taken by these people in my sacrament meeting so many years ago was, well, because Joseph Smith gave multiple accounts of the first vision, that proves that he never saw God. Well, that's not, an actual, that's not actually a historical uh, uh, judgment that you can make. Historians can only prove through documents what most likely happened in the past. We are ill-equipped, and if you, know, if you don't believe this, just meet a few more historians. We aren't close enough to God to know exactly what it is that God thinks and does about everything. Historians can only talk about what most likely happened in the past. Well, miracles, by their definition, by their definition, are always the least likely thing to occur. If they weren't, then we wouldn't call them miracles, right? So... What is more likely, that Jesus walked on water or that his followers just thought that he walked on water, but that he never actually walked on water? 
Well, it's obviously far more likely that Jesus didn't walk on water because no one's ever walked on water. As a historian, we could make all kinds of tests to test this out. We could we could take residents of Utah County, we could go down to Utah Lake, we could all walk out into the water, and, and, and even with as much carp as is in Utah Lake, we would still eventually sink down into the lake. We'd, you know, it'd be, it'd be different, difficult at the time, but we'd sink eventually. The point is, none of us would walk on water. We could take the whole state, we could take the whole country, you could take the whole world. None of them would walk on water. Would that prove that Jesus didn't walk on water? No, because if Jesus walked on water, he walked on water by the power of God. And that's not replicatable. So in the lingo of the field, historians would call you know, a claim to a miracle a phenomenological event, which is a way of both putting you to sleep and also making us sound more intelligent than we are. The idea is it's something that can't be proven or replicated. So if Joseph Smith says an angel appeared to him, there's actually no way for a historian to prove that an angel did or didn't appear to him. So be very careful when someone tries to claim through a historical source that they have proof that a miraculous event didn't happen. Because actually it's not something you can prove through historical sources. Second of all, um, even though people will... Um, will make those claims, the only people who know about that event itself are the people who participated in it. So someone saying, oh yeah, I, you know, Joseph Smith told me that he never really had the plates, that he just like fabricated them and turned them into, you know, he made some tin and he told people that that was plates. Well, yeah, that's a source. It's a source from history. It's just not a very good source. And the reason why it's not a good source is Joseph Smith is claiming that an angel of God showed him where gold plates were. That's not replicatable, and it's not provable. But that's not the same thing as it not being true, right? So be wary of anyone who's making a historical claim to prove that, that some something that didn't happen in the past. I mean, this isn't just the, the provenance of, of Latter-day Saints. I mean, all religious figures. This is how historians treat all religious figures from the past. Martin Luther, for instance, the, the founder of, of the Protestant Reformation, the founder of the Lutheran Church. Martin Luther would later in life, he doesn't write about this at the time, but later in life, he claims that what led to his conversion to God was that, you know, he was he was walking and, and, and got caught in this horrendous thunderstorm to the point where he thought he was going to be killed by it. And in that moment of fear, he cried out to St. Anne to save him, and that if he did, he'd become a monk if, 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 if he was saved. Well, uh, it, it, he, he certainly seemed to believe that that is what happened. And uh, when when he did that, you know, when he when he wrote about it, no historian would sit there and say, well, I think Martin Luther's lying. I don't think that he ever actually had that experience because, I mean, he didn't even talk about it till later. Historians don't do that. Historians would simply say, later in life, Martin Luther said this was his experience. Now, if we had some reason to believe otherwise, you know, maybe 10 years earlier he wrote, no, I didn't have an experience like this at all. I mean, maybe we would examine that. But even if that existed, even if Martin Luther had 10 years earlier written and said, I never had an experience in the thunderstorm and then later said that he did. Even that 
would not disprove a miraculous event because miraculous events by their definition can't be proven so then what would be some examples from history or documents that you have where a person has said something or quoted someone that's then used by antagonists of the church to point to oh hey this didn't happen and and, and so Martin Harris said two things, and so do we believe him then, or do we believe him now? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, a really great uh, uh, question. You know, for instance, Martin Harris is someone who's attacked by, by people who want to delegitimize the gold plates in the Book of Mormon. Part of the, one of the biggest problems for people claiming that Joseph Smith never had, I mean, first of all, the fact that Joseph Smith had gold plates is one of the most difficult problems for non-Latter-day Saint historians to to deal with surrounding Joseph Smith. How, how so? Well, because all other religious people that make truth claims mostly don't have any physical representation of what it is their claim is, right? So, you know, uh, Ellen White, who is the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists, she claims that she's receiving revelations from God. And by the way, she actually doesn't immediately tell people about them and doesn't immediately write them down because that's fairly natural. She, but she really believes God's speaking to her. Well, the, the reality is that it's easy for a historian or anybody to simply take her at face value and say, well, you know, I don't, I don't agree with what her revelations are. But she seems to honestly believe that she's had them. So she's probably just honestly mistaken, right? So so Ellen White, even if you if you don't accept Seventh-day Adventism, you know, Ellen White's not a bad person. She's just mistaken. You know, maybe she she's thought that that was God speaking to her, but of course it wasn't. Well, the gold plates make it much more difficult for someone to make that same kind of argument about Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon also, in and of itself, right? Because Joseph isn't just saying he received revelations. Joseph produces the, this nearly 600-page book that's entirely outside of his abilities, and he says that where it came from was an angel appearing to him and leading him to it, but more so that these were records that were written on these actual gold plates, these physical gold plates. Well... That changes things, right? Because Joseph might, if I'm just being a, a skeptical historian, he might have just thought that he saw an angel. Maybe he had an intense dream and thought that dream was an angel and he told people that it was an angel, but he was still thought he was being honest. Well, he can't think that he has 70, 80 pounds of gold sitting in his house. He either has gold plates or he doesn't have them. And the fact that there are multiple witnesses saying that he has them becomes a problem, right? Because it makes it much harder for me to simply dismiss his revelations as, oh yeah, well, that's just, that's just you know, he, he, he's honestly mistaken. Well, how can you be honestly mistaken about a giant stack of gold plates sitting in your house? Which has led some antagonists to say, yeah, that's because Joseph Smith forged him. He's a forger from the beginning. He he's the original Mark Hoffman. He he created these plates. He 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 you know he stole a bunch of tin. He etched them with a bunch of etchings. He tarnished them to make them look like gold. He convinced people that they were ancient, and and and, and so that makes Joseph Smith a fraudster from the beginning, which means 
that there there is no truth in him. There's not even this honest. Oh, I'm I was honestly mistaken. He can't be because he was forging plates, right? Of course, that doesn't comport in any way with all of the other records we have of Joseph Smith. All of his writings, all of his letters, all of his diaries, his private minutes of meetings, his public, everything of Joseph Smith suggests to a historian that he really, really believes that he was called by God, that he really believes he was. There's, there, there, there's none of this, you know, uh, shadiness about, well, you know, hey, Oliver, once people are past this, uh, you know, th this thinking about the gold plates, then let's really try to cash in on this. I mean, none of those, there's no document that says anything like that. And so it, pre it presents a historical conundrum, right? Joseph Smith seems to, like other religious figures, like Martin Luther and Ellen White, really believe that he was called by God. At the same time, he has something that makes him harder to simply dismiss because he has the possession of these plates that he says God gave him and that other people saw. So one of the natural ways that people have attacked Joseph then is to attack the witnesses of the plates. It makes it a lot easier if I can just get it so that Joseph doesn't have plates. Because if he doesn't have plates, well then, I guess, you know, it was just a fever dream that he had. Or maybe he just got, you know, drank a little bit too much wild turkey and that's the reason why he thought he saw an angel. Now, it wouldn't explain why he saw the angel four times in the less than 24-hour period and why he saw him every year thereafter. I mean, a lot of, a lot of you know, wild turkey episodes, if that's the case, right? And, and so it, it was a common attack on Joseph even early on. You know, people claiming that, well, he, he actually told me he never had plates, you know. Uh, after the fact, but never anyone anything from them. But as to your question, I mean, there are sources where people are making these claims. And I think it's difficult for your average Latter-day Saint to separate the difference between a historical source that exists and whether or not that historical source is credible in its existence. For instance, um, in, uh, in 1838, a guy by the name of Stephen Burnett, he... Uh, is excommunicated from the church. And in his apostasy, he's going to write to a friend of his to try to convince him that he needs to leave the church too. He writes to his friend, and, and what he writes is that, that he heard Martin Harris say deny that he ever actually saw the plates, but that he only saw them in, in a vision or in his mind's eye. And he went on to say that, oh yeah, all the other witnesses say that they never saw the plates either. And by the way, even the eight witnesses also said they didn't see the plates. So so Stephen Burnett is really, you know, he's swinging for the fences on this one. He's, he's, he's claiming that none of the witnesses ever saw the plates. In fact, we can actually, this is from the letter itself. He says, I came to hear Martin Harris state in a public congregation that he never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination. Neither Oliver Cowdery nor David Whitmer, and also that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but were persuaded to do it. Well, you got to give him credit for really going for it. Yeah, he, none of them. He pushed all of his chips to the center of the table. <laughs> no, and, one and, saw, no one saw it. Yeah, none, none of them. And I mean, you know, keep in mind what he's saying then is that Joseph Smith Sr. and Samuel Smith and Hiram Smith are all telling people, yeah, like he forced us to sign this. We never saw the plates. I mean, it's it's clearly preposterous what he's alleging, right? If he had just been saying Martin Harris, well, at least there's a chance he he, he heard Martin Harris say something. But but his claim that all of the witnesses are all publicly denying that they saw anything 
is not backed up in any way. And again, we go back to this miraculous event. I don't know whether or not Stephen Burnett ever even had a conversation with Martin Harris. I have no other sources that say that such a conversation took place. I have no other people reporting on this supposedly public con uh, conversation. Um, or perhaps they, there was some conversation and Stephen Burnett misheard them. I don't know where Stephen Burnett got his information. What do I know? That repeatedly over and over and over and over again, the three and eight witnesses reiterate their belief in the plates. I mean, in point of fact, two of the eight witnesses are dead in 1838, so I'm sure that Stephen Burnett didn't hear them say, by the way, I never saw the plates. But anyway, um, because this is a miraculous event that they're claiming, Martin Harris is not claiming that he was walking down Palmyra's street one day, tripped and landed on some gold plates, and that's how he saw them. He is saying that an angel of God came down out of heaven carrying the plates, showed him the plates, and a voice from heaven, the voice of God said, the translation of these plates is true. That is a miraculous event. And Martin Harris reiterates his belief in that event over and over and over again in his life. So what Stephen Burnett will claim that he heard that Martin Harris say it is a source. It's a letter that actually exists from history. It's just not a good one when it comes to a miraculous event. Because only Martin Harris knows whether or not an angel actually came down and showed him plates. Stephen Burnett can't actually know that. Nor can any historian. All we can do is say this is what Martin Harris said happened. Another example of this is with David Whitmer. Later in his life, um, David Whitmer repeatedly had people claim that he had rejected his testimony. Now, it was easy because David Whitmer was very visibly estranged from the Utah church, right? David Whitmer uh, uh, was excommunicated in 1838, and he never came back to the church. He actually joined several other offshoot branches. He tries to found his own church several times, but he never actually comes back to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, late in his life, uh, a man in Missouri claimed, just like Stephen Burnett did, to have had a conversation with David Whitmer, in which David Whitmer said that he uh, denied his testimony of being one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. David Whitmer was so incensed by this that he put out what he called a proclamation that he published in the same Missouri newspaper. Unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people unto whom these presents shall come, it having been represented by one John Murphy of Polo, Caldwell County, that I, in a conversation with him last summer, denied my testimony of one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. To the end, therefore, that he may understand me now, if he did not then, and that the world may know the truth, I wish now, standing as it were in the very sunset of life, and in the fear of God, once and for all, to make this public statement that I have never at any time denied that testimony or any part thereof which has so long been published with that book as one of the three witnesses. Those who know me best well know that I have always adhered to that testimony and that no man may be misled or doubt my present views in regard to the same. I do again affirm the truth of all of my statements as then made and published. 
He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. It was no delusion. What is written is written, and he that readeth, let him understand. You can see the reason why a historian would take David Whitmer's <laughs> profession that he really did see the plates over Stephen Burnett's claim that David Whitmer said that he never saw them. Because that miraculous event, David Whitmer's going to reaffirm over and over and over again in his life. And so I think that it's important that when we study these events of the past, when people present things from the past, first of all, nobody knows everything from the past. I've studied church history and you know, I've been trained and got a PhD in history and I've studied it for, for decades now. Uh, of my life, studied history. And yet, I, I don't even come close to know everything. I learn new things all the time. We don't need to know everything to come to have a testimony. We can know that the miraculous truth claims of Joseph Smith, that he saw God in an angel, of Martin Harris, of David Whitmer, or of the gospel writers of Jesus himself, we can know that those things happen because of the Holy Spirit of God. This is exactly how Jesus explained to Peter, right? When, 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 they, when he asked, who do men say that I am? Uh, you know, the response uh, after they listed off people, Jesus said, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So we all don't have to be historians and know every single aspect of church history to have a testimony. The only way you can really know the things about God, the only way you can know whether or not an angel appeared to Joseph Smith, or whether the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, is not through some haphazard search of, of historical sources where people deny that fact. Joseph was told from the beginning by the angel that his name would be had for good and evil among all people. So it's not surprising then that in fact his name is known for good and evil among all people. That's not the proof. The proof comes in whether or not the Holy Spirit of God speaks to you and tells you that this really is God's work. And as we go throughout this podcast, hopefully, uh, as we do various episodes, we can answer some of the questions that you have, um, and we can talk about these different historical sources. I think it's important to note that there are people who have studied all of these sources, these, these early sources that we're talking about, who are well-trained, who have the, some of the best degrees, and they're all still certain that Joseph Smith was a prophet. One of the lies that I, I am bothered by, um, because I think it's personally offensive to me, is I'll hear people say things like, well, if you only you had studied more, you'd know that Joseph wasn't a prophet. Well, I don't know who that person is, but because it's my job, I doubt that there are that many people that have studied much more about Joseph Smith than I have. Of course, I have fellow scholars and historians who have. But the reality is, I don't believe it's true. I've, I've read those documents of Joseph Smith, the thousands and thousands of documents and pages. And, and I'm certain that Joseph Smith's a prophet. So if you, if you have questions about things historically, if you're presented with facts that you haven't heard about before, 
don't make a judgment in haste. Realize that historical claims can't ever fully explain, undermine, or support a, a religious truth claim. Miraculous events come from God. We don't believe them because we can prove them. We believe them because they're true. You can even think of the resurrection of the Lord himself, right? The, the reality is it would be very easy to dismiss the resurrection because no one's ever been resurrected before, right? We don't have proof of resurrection. We see people die all the time. It would be much easier to claim, well, his followers just lied to everyone and said that he was resurrected. But being a Christian at all means believing in the most wildly fantastical thing that's ever occurred. That, that Jesus, a, a carpenter from 2,000 years ago, that he was murdered by the Romans and that he came back to life and that because he did, we will all live again. There is nothing in Latter-day Saint history that is any more fantastic, outrageous, or difficult to believe. And so I would hope Christians would recognize that our very belief is based upon something that cannot possibly be proven. And yet it's true. I can't prove that Joseph Smith saw God, but it's true. And, and so I hope as we, we go throughout these podcasts that you can gain from them as we, we answer some questions, cover different historical sources, and we study the Doctrine and Covenants this year, and, and hopefully add some kind of benefit. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.